Hey there, friends. Paul Carter here, the lead pastor of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Aurelia and the host and Bible teacher of the End of the Word podcast. This is the podcast version of the Canadian Pastors Forum, where we discuss issues of interest to the wider Canadian church. We're so glad to have all of you with us. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, Christian or biblical counseling in the church. I'll start with a confession. Uh, I put this topic together largely because I wanted it to function as a bit of a homework club. Uh, like a lot of pastors out there, I'm trying to figure my way through this. There's been an avalanche of counseling needs and counseling requests uh, for most of us in the church, and I'm trying to figure out uh, what the right procedure is here. How how much of this should we be doing? How widely should we be referring? Those are some of the issues uh, that we're hoping to look at today. Uh, here to help me uh, out with this topic is my wonderful panel. I've got uh, my erstwhile collaborator, Wyatt Graham at TGC Canada. Michael Cron, pastor and pastoral coach, R.D. Glenn, Anglican minister and fitness guru. Guru, I've got that here in the notes, so I had to say that. And then uh, Rob Goddard, pastor, elder, and also frequent collaborator here on the forum. So, uh, brothers, thank you so much for being with us. Appreciate having you here. Good to be here. A privilege. Well, let me set this up uh, as quick as I can. Uh, obviously, as I mentioned, there's been a massive spike in mental health concerns all across the country. And uh, it, it's not just COVID. I think a lot of times we're overly simplistic. We say, wow, you know, it's because of COVID. But actually, all the data uh, from 2019 indicates that the spike was already happening. And, uh, and COVID, if anything, really just made it worse. So Gene Twenge, for example, using 2019 data reports that every indicator of mental health and psychological well-being has become more negative among teens and young adults since 2012, close quote. So things were bad, and, and then the pandemic made it worse. 54% of Canadians actually indicated that their mental health declined over the course of the pandemic. So things are pretty bad out there, and pastors have been doing more counseling probably than ever before and referring to more counselors outside the church than ever before, and that's what we're hoping to talk about today. So let's start there. Let's just go around the table, around the circle here, and uh, obviously without giving away any confidential details, Give us a sense of how much counseling you're doing uh, in the course of your pastoral ministry and uh, and how much you think a pastor should be doing. All right. So, R.D., why don't we start with you? Sure. I guess, I mean, I think we're going to have to define terms, right? But in yep. terms of pastoral counseling, um, in a broad sense, I've definitely noticed an uptick over the last few years. Um, I don't know as a percentage of my time, but I can certainly say that it's more than it was several years ago. And the needs... Paul seemed to be more, you know, it used to be that people would come to me um, with acute issues and now it appears that they're more chronic issues, more mm -hmm. ongoing things. And so that actually necessitated in our church, um, a new initiative where we are planning to develop a biblical counseling department or center, but I, I can share more about that in a little bit. Okay. All right, Michael, how about yourself? I'd say I've maintained a fairly consistent routine of personal meetings uh, to offer wisdom, mentoring, uh, counsel, um, and more people are willing to seek professional help. I'd say in my uh, conversations with people, yeah, there's definitely more extreme mental health situations since and during the uh, pandemic, but in the sense of offering pastoral counsel from God's word, I'd say there's been a real uptick in interest and hunger for wisdom from God's word uh, during and especially after once all the restrictions had been lifted. And so I think having consistently preached for years that God's word is the source of wisdom and strength has come in 
quite handy over the last couple of years in the sense that when people feel in need, they want to know what God's word has to say. And so I don't offer counseling in a technical or, or clinical sense. And we'll talk a bit more about that later, I think. But I'm happy to refer people to godly, trustworthy professionals as the situation warrants. All right, Rob. So I, I think we should be involved as uh, pastoral teams in counseling or certainly the churches in counseling and my time. So I'm a senior pastor with a multiple staff. We do have a, a pastor of care who does most of the counseling, although when you preach, people tend to think you know more than everyone else. And so as the main preacher, they want to see me. So I, I try to keep my time scheduled and structured, try to keep my personal counseling to about four four issues with four sessions. Uh, I, I agree with what was said earlier. I think a lot of times people want more than that. Sometimes people want love. They just, just want to be yeah. connected. And I think uh, building communities, uh, we're trying to structure in those things as well. So secondary care levels, uh, also proactive. H how do we think biblically? How do we develop worldviews that are biblical? And then how does that come to form into people's lives? But we have definitely seen an uptick in counseling and needs or or our time as a staff. And so we try to limit my time to four uh, issues for people and four sessions. I don't do well at it. I tend to have a, a pastor's heart that bleeds and it tends to bleed over that. And so I have an elders board that keeps me accountable. And I, actually, I would prefer it that way. So I, I think we need to love our people and we need to care about them living their lives in obedience to Jesus and in helping them remove the barriers that are stopping them from having that joy in Christ and the fullness of the spirit and a life of obedience to God. Why? how about you? Yeah, I'd say in my context, at least over the last five years, I've noticed an uptick in guys who are much more open with how they're doing in life, mm -hmm. which is different from like my early or late twenties. Uh, it might just be my age category because most people I'm, I'm working with or discipling or whatever are in their thirties, but just a, a, a this openness and yeah, there are a lot of people who have deep mental anguish and it's almost surprising how many people do and how regular it is. Yeah. I can't tell you if this is different from 20 years ago. It could just be the stage of life I'm in. People are ready to open up or it could be a renewed openness to confess how we feel or it could be it's new. So yeah. some of you have been around longer than me, so you'd, you'd be able to answer that better than I. Well, for me, uh, similar to Rob, pastoral team context. And so we've got other people who um, carry a lot of a load on that. But also as the main preacher, I can identify with the idea that sometimes people want to talk to you. Uh, maybe that's because something was stirred up by the sermon, or maybe that's, as you say, just because they assume, hey, the guy in the pulpit must know stuff. Um, I, I find that I do a lot of uh, sort of marriage counseling, both pre-marriage counseling and then kind of marriage crisis. And then I do uh, what I guess I would call a fair bit of just general pastoral counseling when somebody's stuck in their spiritual life and wanting to talk about that. Mm. Uh, but I would say, you know, just my 10,000 foot perspective is there is a lot more mental health. I'm going to say both awareness and need in the congregation than there was, um, you know, let's, let's say 20 years ago. I've been here for almost 18 years, but I've been in, in ministry for longer than that. And I would say over the last 20 years, I have seen a real increase some of that may be an increased comfort level in talking about it, but I think some of it is just there's more mental health um, concern at the congregational level, particularly in those, I'm going to say, under 30. 
uh, 30 and under are just tons of, of anxiety, tons of depression, uh, a whole lot of that stuff. So I'm definitely seeing, seeing more there. So let's talk about biblical counseling. Uh, I don't know if this is, if this is controversial or not. I, I feel like when I was going through seminary, biblical counseling was not really uh, controversial. Uh, I was back kind of in the early days where biblical counseling meant Jay Adams and, and neuthetic counseling, that, that kind of approach. And it was kind of presented as one of the tools in your toolbox um, for pastoral care. And it wasn't a big controversy. It, it has become more controversial, I think, in the last five to 10 years. Uh, not, not in terms really of whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I, I think there are just more people saying, not only is this a good tool in your toolbox, this should be the only tool in your toolbox. And, and that I think is, is sort of where the controversy is. And so I guess I'd like to, to talk a little bit about that. What is biblical counseling and uh, is it one tool in the toolbox or is it the toolbox? And uh, how should we think about that? So for those who aren't as familiar, I thought I'd fire out a couple of, of, um, of definitions. As I mentioned, back when I was going through seminary, biblical counseling meant Jay Adams. Um, he's one of the pioneers. I, I don't know if you'd say he's one of the pioneers or the pioneer. I'm not sure how you'd say it, but he, uh, his definition goes like this. He, he refers to biblical counseling as bringing God's word to bear upon people's lives in order to expose sinful patterns, to correct what is wrong, and to establish new ways of life of which God approves. All right. Uh, Bob Kellerman, one of the sort of new leaders of the, of the movement, former professor of biblical counseling at Faith Bible Seminary in Lafayette, uh, provides the following definition. This is a longer one. Uh, he says, Christ-centered, church-based, comprehensive, compassionate, and culturally informed biblical counseling depends upon the Holy Spirit to relate God's word to suffering and sin by speaking and living God's truth in love to equip people to love God and one another. It cultivates conformity to Christ, the whole person becoming whole in Christ, our inner life increasingly reflecting the inner life of Christ and communion with Christ and the body of Christ, leading to a community of one another disciple makers, close quotes. That's, that's a mouthful. And then uh, my third definition is from John Piper. Uh, John was one of the original uh, champions of the movement, and uh, plus his definitions are usually awesome and filled with hyphens, so uh, that's why I've chosen it. So he says, biblical counseling is God-centered, Bible-saturated, emotionally in-touch use of language to help people become God-besotted, Christ-exalting, joyfully self-forgetting lovers of people, closed quote. All right, so... Uh, Anything you want to say about those definitions, any of those that would resonate with your understanding of the discipline of biblical counseling, what comes closest to your understanding of things? We'll just throw it out. Anything you want to add to that other than an appreciation for good hyphen use? I would say, I don't know if I lucked out or if this is common, but the Christian psychotherapist that I've worked with for the last decade personally has integrated all three of those definitions. I mean, he he's not from within my church, but other than that, um, yeah, into the counseling that he's done with me. So, but if I had to choose one, I'd probably go with uh, Piper's because, yes, lots of hyphens, but it's also succinct. It really captures the essence of what counseling should be without being overly prescriptive about methods. So, I'd probably lean toward that one. Yeah. Interesting. You mentioned uh, that the Christian psychotherapist you go you go to sounds like he's doing or he or she is doing this thing. I've had a similar experience recently where I think biblical counseling has hardened into a brand mm -hmm. and, um, and almost like a copyrighted brand. And so they, it seems some, and we have to be careful here because 
this is not true of everybody, but some biblical counselors wouldn't like it if you said that your Christian psychotherapist was doing biblical counseling, because they would say, no, they're not. That's not biblical counseling. But I, I have the same experience. I have a friend who's a, who's a Christian counselor. And when you give him a definition of biblical counseling, he'll say, well, that's what I do. And, and I would agree. I think, I think that is what he does. But, but then he would have other tools to, to bring to bear. So sometimes it's a question of what tools and, and what analytical methods um, you know, you'll bring to bear as, as you may pursue these same ends. Paul, may I build on something you just said? Um, sure. At the risk of stereotyping myself as the but actually guy, um, it's really interesting. You have Jay Adams, this new aesthetic counseling, and then you have David Pallas in this biblical counseling movement. Yeah. And as you noted, it's sort of weird to, to brand yourself as the biblical counseling movement when we've had 2,000 years of Christian Christianity right. who has right. always and frequently used the Bible to counsel people from the word, not just the Puritans, but even the first few centuries. There's a deep and rich soul care tradition sourced in Holy Scripture, and there's so much wisdom and help there. But I kind of wonder in this conversation, like, I agree with what we're doing. But I would almost caution us from saying this is the biblical counseling guys. Well, these are the newthetic counseling guys. They're not really the biblical guys. Yeah. <laughs> because the language we use almost implies that if um, Michael disagrees with biblical counseling, he's unbiblical. Yeah. I don't think any of us want to say that. I, I know you want to clarify. I think a ton of this controversy actually comes down to sloppy or unwise use of language and terms. Like, uh, so. I can I, think of it this way. You know, imagine there was a group that started out like, um, like, you know, the gospel project is a curriculum, um, not company, but brand. Imagine a company started or a brand started called um, biblical youth ministry. Well, it would be weird of them to say that if we don't use their curriculum, we're not, not doing biblical. biblical youth ministry. That's weird and probably unkind. Uh, right. Like we are very much doing biblical counseling or uh, biblical youth ministry, despite that we might be using mm. some other curriculum product. So I, I think you're probably right. It, it would be better if this was called Nuthetic Counseling or, you know, Jay Adams 1.0, 2.0 or whatever you want to call it, um, than just calling it biblical counseling because everybody does biblical counseling. Um, and we've been, as you say, we've been doing this for for 2000 years. So that's that's probably part of the controversy. Yeah, I, I think you're so right. And I think we need to define our terms, understand what we're fighting yeah. over. And I think some people in the movement, whatever you want to call the movement, have decided that everything that disagrees with them is evil right. and and then fought against some stuff, some legitimate fighting, some not legitimate fighting. But I think also often the followers of the movement become almost vile against those who disagree or might have had a different experience. And instead of evaluating it biblically, which I think I'm hearing here, they evaluate it with what their understanding of their movement is. And then anybody who's offside of their understanding of their movement is not doing biblical stuff, is worldly, is part of the therapeutic movement, is whatever right. words they use in their little pattern to put it down. So I, I think we just need to be very careful in the discussion to define our terms, to understand what we want, which is a biblical worldview of life. The overflow of that is helping people live in obedience to Jesus in every area of their life with joy and that passion and, and live on mission for him. And then the pathway to get there is the one we want to be in line with that, but it doesn't have to be called a certain thing. And, and I don't think we need to limit it to what some want us to limit it to. So again, I just think we define terms, define what we're after, where our authority is, and then track there, not necessarily where some of the people in these movements would want us to be. And I think that, I think Rob, you're right on in that. And um, 
At the same time, I do think it's important that we insist that whatever we call our practice, that it that it is biblical. Yes. You know, I was I remember at one point, so you know, the categories and the words that we use is one thing, but I sure would all agree that that's important. One time I was walking with um, retired Archbishop of Sydney, Australia. His name's Paul Barnett. Paul Barnett is also a second Corinthian scholar. You may be familiar with him. Yeah. And got his commentary. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. I think it's like magisterial. But anyway, he um he said to me as we were parting ways, he said to me, he goes, RD, always remember, without the Bible, you are nothing but an underqualified social worker. Yeah. You know, and I thought that was really good counsel and it stuck with me through the years yeah. because as a pastor, um, you know, that is what we have. Yeah. Oh, that's really and I, th- good. I think in it, I think a lot of pastors in my era, which I, I'm, I guess, getting older, did make the slip. They slipped into a world understanding of therapy, a world understanding, and they started to marry those two with presuppositions coming from the world. Not that we can't learn from what people are discovering and body language and those sorts of things. But yeah, I agree a hundred percent with you. I think, but again, we're defining our terms and we're choosing where we want to fight, which is not necessarily where everybody wants that fight. But I agree wholeheartedly. I was going to quote the quote the Baptist D.A. Carson just to kind of even up the Anglican Baptist, you know, understandings here, but I never had that conversation with him, so I can't. But <laughs> but I, I would just like to say, yeah, I, I think we have to be biblical and the world has a way, a pathway to health that is going to be different than ours. And if we're a friend of the world, there's a pretty good chance we're at enmity with God. So I, and I think the world has moved into post-COVID, I think, increasing, but even before, a very strong therapeutic destructive pathway. And if you're looking for self-actualization or whatever it is they're currently going after, I, I think it will lead to destruction. And if we join them in that pathway or even in the presuppositions and worldview of that, we will lead our people into destruction. So I agree with you. Quoting DA well, that that actually really came into focus for me a little while ago, if I may, when we were talking about this as a staff and, you know, we were developing this um, biblical counseling center at our church. And we were saying things like, you know, talking about mental health and all those matters. And someone in the room said, well, you know, all mental health issues are fundamentally because of sin. Right. And everyone in the room kind of sat up straight and, and then they unpacked it and they said, no, no, in a broad sense, like it may be your sin. It may be someone else's sin against you. It may be the plague or curse of sin upon yeah, we're know, the cosmos. And, and what then came into focus was that so many, even on our own staff, had passively co-opted a secular view that would then inform how we would approach counseling. You know, if we're Christians, we have to start with biblical anthropology and we have to start with a biblical understanding of the human person. And so that's critical. Mm. Good. Can I add? Yeah, oh. yeah, go ahead. Well, because it's almost so we're talking about we have to be biblical. I want to be careful of the branding, and I agree with that. And yet, it's as RD has articulated, it's possible to go too far in one direction. Like on a sliding scale, you have what might be psychology, Christian psychology, integrationalist, biblical counseling, nuthetic counseling, wherever you want to land on that. Is there a definition out there right now that goes too far and actually assumes too much of the world's definition of mental health? So that it's it's almost excluding sin as a primary or original cause. I, I'd be curious if you have any thoughts on that. Is there something out there that you know of that's obvious to you that does transgress biblical boundaries? I, I don't know if I do. I'm just curious. I don't There's a resource that can help you answer answer that. I don't I, I don't know if it gives yeah. you the answer, but it gives you the categories to answer that. Uh, it's, there's a book that we work through in our 
our counseling workshop actually called um, the spectrum of biblical, I think it's called the spectrum of Christian counseling. And it kind of goes through from, from left to right or from right to left, whatever, five different sort of perspectives on the issue. And I kind of felt myself resonating with the middle three and being concerned at the edges kind of thing. So it, it, it can certainly give you the categories to, to answer that question. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that book. Uh, yeah, it's I, useful. Thought were, I thought you were going to say chat GPT. <laughs> yeah, that could probably do it too. The only arbiter of truth. <laughs> well, listen, let me, let me uh, sort of bounce off of that and say, okay, granted that we all agree um, that biblical counseling is a good thing and that counseling people in a biblical manner is a good thing, just to sort of bring those together. Um, and I would assume we probably also agree that you can go too far in adopting worldly secular categories and, and methodologies. I think we'd all agree there. So uh, let me see if I can sort of zoom in on this and put my finger on, on maybe some of the issues. What about organic causes? So RD, a minute ago, you said um, there is a sense in which it's, it's accurate to say all mental health issues are, are due to sin either the sin done by us, the sin done to us, or, or just the sin of Adam, right? The, the, the curse of sin in the world. Okay. Does that mean then when somebody comes to you for biblical counseling, that, that you would be hesitant to refer them to a family doctor or that, or that you would uh, be hesitant about them taking um, anti-anxiety medication? Uh, I'd, I'd be curious to hear your perspective on organic causes and, and medical interventions. RD, since you, uh, you got this started, do you want to take a look at that? Sure. I mean, I'll take a stab at it. We have a, a gentleman in our church who's a clinical psychologist, and he was actually a um, Canadian pioneer of cognitive behavioral therapy. And because he's a Christian, he sort of, he brings cognitive behavioral therapy, but from a Christian perspective. Right. And I know that CBT, for example, has been scandalous in some Christian circles, but in conversations with him, he's really helped me to understand some of those chemical issues that can be behind uh, mental health as well. Um, how exactly that slices, I'm not exactly sure, but I believe that the fallout of the fall is comprehensive and right. you know, we have bodies. And so in the same way, you could still drill it back to original sin that we have these bodies that malfunction in different ways. Um, I am not a, a psychologist or a counselor, but when I have people who come to me, I sort of bring them through a progression of things, right? If I suspect that maybe they need serotonin reuptake inhibitors at some point, um, in addition to the biblical counseling, I'll just give them practical advice. Like maybe it's good practice to start by setting an alarm every morning and going for a walk every day and getting some sunlight and you know doing those disciplines. You don't just jump right to the nuclear solution right away. Yeah. Um, but I don't, but I don't shy away from, from, from forwarding people onto those experts who can make those decisions better than I, I just, I'm also all too aware of the side effects that some of those solutions yeah. come with. And so I, yeah. I'm hesitant to push people in those directions. I don't push them, but eventually if they need to go there, they can, but I try to present other options along the way. And I think Paul, there's also been a culture where we are too quick to go to those Agreed. solutions, right? So yeah, 100%. whether it's through reinforcing how the gospel can actually reshape the way that we think, the way that we act, which then creates positive feedback loops for how we feel, um, or it's just giving them good, solid, practical counsel and advice, I would do those things before I would send them off to big pharma. So to summarize, you're saying uh, you, you recognize a, a place uh, for medical intervention. 
you don't deny uh, organic causes, but you you would want to um, go slow in terms of embracing those things and uh, take good advantage of the ordinary means, so to speak, before you get into these extraordinary interventions. Is that a decent summary? That was a great summary. Thank you. Well, I, I, I provide the summary just in case anybody wants to disagree with that, because that's where I would land, too. That's exactly what I would say. Is there anybody who, yeah, who would I, like to tweak on that a little bit? I, I would tweak it just a little bit. I'd be probably a little less hesitant. So I have a field in which I believe I can offer help in. Outside of that field, I'm not sure I can. So I want to build a trusted group around me. Uh, we, we've seen damage done both ways. We've seen damage done. I'm talking now about our church damage done when people have decided that medical intervention is sin mm -hmm. and any yeah. sort of help medically is evil. In fact, that's probably where our church would lean, uh, if you kind of chase down the average pew member. So we had a lady struggling with postpartum depression. She didn't want to go to a doctor. She knew she was sinful and she wanted to die <clears throat> for me. Uh, obviously she needs help across the board. She needs spiritual help. She needs physical help and she needs emotional help would be my answer. So I would want intervention there across the whole pathway of health. And I wouldn't want to hesitate. On the other hand, I've seen it do damage to people where uh, sometimes repentance is what they need, not anxiety pills or not um, bipolar, I guess, I suppose. Now I know it's a, a huge uh, gamut when you talk to doctors and psychiatrists, which again, we have those in our church family. Uh, they don't even want to label it that low now, but you don't want to jump too quick either. But I do think we have to admit it's outside of our expertise and yeah. where we can offer help is on the spiritual side of things and where we should and where we must. And on the worldview side of things, I think is very, very important. And then when there's things we don't understand or things that are over, I think have trusted people that are experts in those fields. I think your uh, cognitive beha behavioral therapy, I think can do incredible things in the right uh, context. And again, I wouldn't jump there super quick, but, uh, but I think we've seen it do incredible things for people that we love who have gone from struggling with confusion and cognitive dissonance to being able to handle life and actually think through things from a biblical perspective. So some of the people that come to me literally can't. Uh, and again, I, maybe some people will struggle with what I'm saying in terms of spiritual power and those sorts of things, but at least it feels to me like they can't make decisions in the right direction, which is where I'm trying to drive them from a worldview motivational perspective. And then I, I think we need others to help us to see if there are things that are bigger than we understand or we are experts in and, and to get help with those from people we trust. So I, I think that'd be my only, I have cautions on both sides. I'm hesitant on both sides. People say to me, there's no such thing as medical help. I'd go, well, I, I, I disagree. I think we are complex human beings. If people yeah. said the only help is medical or that medical never hurts people, then I would also say that's, that's certainly not what I've experienced, not an expert in it, but not what I've experienced. Yeah. I'd say we're all roughly on the same page here. I, I would, you know, you take it on a case by case basis. I mean, if you're entering a situation where there's an immediate physical or mental health crisis, of course, you're going to refer that to people that can help best in those situations. But under normal circumstances, if someone com comes to me for counsel, I encourage them to examine their symptoms for spiritual causes first. And uh, like RD said, like my thinking being that medical intervention may turn out to be the solution, but it's often not a preferable solution because there are side effects to those interventions, right? And to be a little more personal and transparent, I'd say that this approach is based on my own experiences with uh, periods of depression in my 20s and 30s, and at times really considering going on medication and not really being 
averse to that, but discovering that I was able to endure and endure faithfully by pressing into spiritual and creative disciplines. And so I, I always want to kind of offer that to people first. If they haven't tried that, that, that would be a good place to start. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I mean, the key thing for, if there are younger pastors watching on it, uh, I think that the key thing is to recognize and affirm that as human beings, we are psychosomatic holes. Uh, and by that, I mean, W H O L, uh, we <laughs> we're, we're, we're body and, and soul in every situation. And so I would I would imagine that there aren't too many problems that we're going to have that that are not a that don't have a complex of causes, um, and and so I'm concerned about the desire to simply benumb a feeling with a medical intervention, um, even though I I would happily and and boldly recognize that of course there are there are organic factors to consider there. But even in a situation where the cause is majority organic, I, I would argue there's still something to be examined there, spiritually speaking. And uh, so I, I kind of want to have a both and approach almost as my default approach when I'm talking to people. Like I'm just assuming you've got a both and problem here. And obviously I'm, I'm qualified and, and a little more capable in the area of, of the soul and the spirit. So I'll, I'll speak with greater confidence there and then maybe suggest when we're done. Now, it might not be a bad idea to talk to your family doctor as well and, uh, and just see what's going on there. Uh, but I also really, just to go back to circle back to what RD said, I really think we underestimate the ordinary means, like uh, not to be too testimonial here, but uh, when we were in Indianapolis, uh, I was feeling a little low as I don't have a huge emotional range. Like, I don't think I get too high or too low, but I was feeling as, as low as, as I typically will feel just because of some parenting difficulties that we were having. And I just found going out for dinner with, uh, you know, several of you guys were there and just going out, out for dinner with, with the guys that were, were there and, uh, friends that I had. And then I had a great conversation with George at that at that dinner, just about some, he was having some similar struggles. I found that like almost completely restorative, like where I, you know, if I was a negative 40 going into that dinner, I came out like <clears throat> plus 90 and, and nothing happened. I don't think there were any drugs in, in, in the food that I ate or, uh, but it was just spending time with, with brothers that I love. And then a, a, a good conversation with a friend. I found that massively and i just and, and even sometimes walking outside i have that i have that experience and so i just wonder if maybe some of our counsel after we've read bible verses and prayed together needs to be now listen go for a walk outside in the sunshine and then spend time with a friend mm -hmm. and one piece to add to what you're saying paul i loved your word benumb i want to get to that in a second is uh the only book in the bible that's explicitly written to help us emote christianly is the book of psalms and in Psalms, you have people anxious because they lack sleep, so they need to sleep. Right. You have people anxious because enemies are at the gates, so they need rescue. Material causes of internal feelings or mental anguish are real. You have, right. uh, was it Psalm 127 that says, how blessed is it when you know, brothers dwell in unity? So schism is a cause of, let's say, mental anguish. And so your example of going out with friends for, for dinner and talking is, is hugely important and built into what it means to be a human, according to the Psalms. There's also another idiom in the Psalms. So for example, Psalms 42 and 43 talk about an individual who basically says, why is my soul so cast down within me? Why am I so down, downtrodden? 
And the answer in the Psalms, I think it's a bit shocking. The answer in those two Psalms is that so that he and we would seek God because of our emptiness. Mm. Therefore, if we benumb through drugs, our inner uh, emptiness through certain kinds of depression, certain kinds of anxiety, we might lose the built-in mechanism that is meant for us to be drawn towards God. Mm. As a consequence, for me personally, I'm all for using uh, uh, appropriate drugs, don't get me wrong. But sometimes, I, and this is going to sound a little bit extreme, sometimes I think it's better to leave us where we are so that we draw near to God because of how we feel. Mm. And I'm, Wyatt, I, I'm, I'm there's so, lots of balance, so I'm not trying to say it's, you know. Wyatt, I'm so glad you said that. Um, I wasn't going to give examples from scripture. I was going to give examples from history, right? About how God has a purpose and a providence and how sometimes we are too quick to try to deliver people out of things rather than praying that they would have the strength to endure them mm -hmm. um, and, and, and have God's purposes come through, you know, like William Cooper, the great hymnist, right? He battled deep depression his whole life and wrote some of the greatest hymns. Um, I was reading John Owen recently and he was talking about his own battle with depression and his conclusion was that he felt like God had, in a severe mercy granted him that season so that he would learn to draw water from the rock. You know, it's Virgin, exactly those Luther. images. Yeah. And, and, this and is you would never wish it upon yourself or anyone. No, you no. You never but wish for pastor, when they come. You have to look for that possibility. And like all of us know that often creatives in, in the natural realm are, are afflicted with something. But I have to wonder if a lot of times Christian ministers are allowed to go through deep trials like this. So they strive towards God and have the experience to share the, the bounty and riches of the overflow of, of what they've gone through and God being their bulwark and support through it all. So that you can be the kind of person that is like adamantium steel, like the rock that's, you know, cast upon and not broken. Um, anyways, that's just, I wanted to add that in. Maybe I'm too pious, but I think there's something to that. I think sometimes we over internalize and subjectivize our emotions and feelings like I feel sad or I'm mad or I don't feel like love today. When the Bible often views those more objectively, you're you have joy because of what's true. You have joy because God is and you love. Have to speak you have joy those truths holy. to your soul, right? Like I mean, I think yeah. it was Martin Lloyd Jones who who said, you know, the secret to yeah. getting out of depression is to spend less time listening to yourself and more time talking yeah. to yourself, right? Which, by the way, sounds a lot like cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Um, it, you know, it's interesting. Some, sometimes I think we just have to call a spade a spade and acknowledge that, hey, these these worldly folks are copying us. So we don't need to abandon this method, right? Like Jews yeah. and Christians have been talking to their souls for, you know, 3000 years. Uh, so, you know, just because now pagans are doing it doesn't mean we have to stop. Yeah. And uh, Martin so Lloyd-Jones gets that from Psalm 42 and 43. Yeah, exactly right. As he's speaking to his soul. Why are you downcast? Oh, my soul. He's addressing his soul directly. Right. Uh, well, I've got a couple issues I want to I want to get to. And I see we're, we're getting close to the end of our time here. So I don't know if we'll get to all these. But um, one of the things that's come up in this conversation, just I've had this conversation. I'm sure you guys have, too. I've had it about a dozen times with different people from different angles. And one of the issues that is often brought into the conversation is uh, the, the doctrine of, of the sufficiency of scripture. People will say, if, if I say, for example, oh, I really enjoyed that book by Greg Lukiana or Jonathan Haidt or, or whatever uh, on cognitive behavioral therapy, some, some of my friends will sort of, you know, tilt their head and say like, whoa, you, don't you think there are enough resources in the scripture, you know, for, for addressing these things? 
And, uh, and I, I kind of feel like I, I'm not, uh, I don't see these things as at odds. Like, uh, I think that, that as a Christian, uh, my doctrine of scripture doesn't necessarily mean that I expect to find in the Bible, the best recipe for blueberry muffins, uh, or, you know, complex instructions on how to change the oil in my car. Uh, doctrine of scripture sufficiency means that the scriptures are sufficient for everything related to salvation and godly living. And so uh, it's okay for me to grab onto other tools in, in order to pursue those ends. Uh, that, that does not represent any, any flagging of faith in the, in the doctrine of sufficiency. Would any of you answer differently or take a different tack there? Am I, am I bark up the wrong tree? No, agree fully. I, I, I do think that uh, we can in that understanding, every counseling program I know of talks about body language, talks about uh, right. understanding what's behind all sorts of things that aren't explicitly in the Bible, every counseling program I know of. So when I've had this debate with some who would be very exclusionary of anything outside of the Bible, I always ask, well, when you learn this, you know, did you learn this? Did they teach these things? I, so I would right. just affirm everything, everything. And I think when people are willing to at least step back from their rhetoric, I think most people would agree with you. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And, and, and I think that's just something to maybe helpful for pastors to hear. Don't be afraid about sharp, you know, adding some tools uh, from other sources. This, the doctrine of sufficiency doesn't mean that we believe the Bible is the only source of truth and knowledge in the universe. Right. Uh, I found the book, The Skilled Helper, to be very helpful. I think uh, written by a guy named Eakin. And um, I use that all the time, just in terms of uh, it helps me listen better. It helps me repeat uh, and summarize what I'm hearing to people. They find that very helpful. It basically is a tool on how to run a, a useful conversation, a helping conversation. Yeah. I find that very, very, very useful. And it's, it's not in the Bible, but it's good stuff. There's also a danger if, if like the simplest illustration is if I need brain surgery, I'm not right. going to give the tools to Paul Carter, right? I'll give it to a brain surgeon. So I've actually a, watched a YouTube video on emergency <laughs> surgery. So I will actually, let Paul do it I, on me. Well, Why if you, you watch have no YouTube, faith. you're basically an expert. You've done GPT again. I really want to do an emergency <laughs> tracheotomy. I have, I have seen a video <laughs> on that, could. and it's I've one of my life done, goals. I'm a doctor who's done one medical uh, uh, event. I, I delivered a baby, so I'm, you know. Yeah, well, you have a doctorate. I would trust you with yeah. very little else. <laughs> uh, I, what was I going to? Oh, sufficient. I think. Some the Bible is sufficient for exactly what God made it sufficient for. So if you say it's sufficient for things God didn't intend it to be, there's a danger there where you will just make mistakes and can do harm. A, spiritually equivalent to getting Paul Carter to do brain surgery. Yeah, I don't like that metaphor, but I totally agree with where you're going. <laughs> you know, right, well, let me let me uh, let me take I, oh, just, go, Art, Paul, go ahead. I want to play. Um, you know, I don't want to say the devil's advocate on this because I actually agree with what you're saying. But then, why to your point? Um, what would you say to someone who was arguing that the Bible is sufficient on these matters because the Bible, you know, the the human person is what the Bible's speaking to and the saving of the human person as a whole? Um, you know, they wouldn't see the dichotomy between, um, you know, the person's mental illness or need and their spiritual state. Yeah, I think my which the Bible speaks. I think my basic answer would be that the, the Bible is sufficient for life and godliness. So it is for the full human person, but some of the applications for how to solve the problem that the Bible clearly articulates and the re resolution the Bible clearly, clearly articulates may take pastoral wisdom. And that's the reason why there's wisdom literature in the Bible, like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, and so on. Just like you said earlier, uh, you might tell someone to go for a walk and get into the sun for a little bit. 
I think that's the category of wisdom that we often forego because we have two categories. It's either brute nature and, and science or a Bible verse. Well, mm. but the Bible says you should be wise and you should allow wisdom to indwell you, which, you know, so I think there's a category for wisdom that, uh, that uh, is both biblical and answers the question that you had. And, and the Bible gives us a grid for evaluating which tools are helpful to use and which are not. Like yes. that's how I, I, I don't think, you know, if the Bible was going to address every topic, um, it would be, you know, the size of an encyclopedia, it would be the size of a library, right? It couldn't do it. So what it does is it gives us a grid to evaluate. Is this a good tool or a bad tool? Is this a helpful method or an unhelpful method? I agree. And I think you ask them, like you said, is it good to learn how to ask good questions? I, I think most of us, most of the people that are asking me those questions, and we do have them in, in our congregation, most of them would learn how to ask good questions or how to lead well or how to, mm -hmm. there, there's all sorts of things that aren't there. We, we need to submit everything we learn from outside sources to the authority of the Bible. But I, I again, most of the people I've talked to, once you walk them down a few of those questions of, well, okay, so how do you learn to read body language? Does that matter? Because the Bible doesn't seem to give us clear patterns on how to do that or how do you ask questions or how do you those sorts of things yeah. they're willing at least to back down a little bit and be willing to think a little bit outside of the box that is too limiting yeah good all right well i want to talk a little bit about referrals um there may be senior pastors out there who who do the majority of counseling in their church maybe you can do that in a in a smaller church uh but in I think even today with all the needs, even in a smaller church, you, you can't be doing all this. Uh, certainly in a medium-sized church and a large church, you cannot be the, the primary counselor in your church. So most of us are functioning like uh, a triage nurse. Um, that's sort of the metaphor that makes sense to me. People will often come to me. I'll listen to them for you know 45 minutes or so. And then I will say, there is a lady in our church who is you know a skilled biblical counselor. I appreciate her so much she would would be the right person to walk with you for the next eight to 10 weeks as you process this issue. Or, uh, you know, there is a guy uh, who's specialized in addictions counseling in our church, and he would be the right guy. So I, I, I would say I'm probably like fifth on the counseling depth chart in our, in our church. And most of the time I'm referring to other people. So uh, on the issue of referral, is that your practice? Uh, how wide? What work should a pastor do before he refers? How well should he know people? And how widely should he refer? And then uh, how do you create a referral database? Those are some of the questions I think it would be helpful for you, you know, sort of veteran pastors to address. Yeah, I have a list of, uh, of counselors. Well, more than a list, I have the advantage of having this long-term working relationship with my own uh, counselor psychotherapist. So when someone is in need, I'm able to describe the situation and he's able to refer them to a counselor who might help. And yeah. so the way that I make that list based on my personal experience and my, and the experience of my congregants, like I'll oft, often check in after a referral to see how it went, not asking for details, but asking about the experience. Uh, but you start, you started in a good place though, too, Paul, like there, if there are individuals in our churches who are experienced in certain areas or just older godly people that might be brought into the situation. That's that's worth uh, calling on as well. Okay, Rob, how about you? We definitely have referral lists, and and I would caution pastors to just to do their research thoroughly because yeah. in this world there are a lot of people that do it, say they do it in a biblical manner, and don't. 
and the therapeutic mentality of make sure you're who your true identity is if that's not christ it's it's a very dangerous road so we have been burnt by it before where we pay so we pay for a lot of the outsourcing we do uh, we ha have an accountability structure in that where they report back they're careful how they report back and we have signed agreements and those sorts of things but I would say not only do you need to check thoroughly who you're passing people on to, you need to hold them accountable to the biblical things you want to hold them accountable to. But yeah, we outsource a lot and we do cover a lot of what we outsource. So we have a benevolent fund if people can't afford, if it's not covered by their insurance, which a lot of the people that we want to outsource to aren't covered by insurance. And we do continually check up on. So it's actually not me that does it. It's our, our care pastor, but very important to us that every person we pass on to is someone who would align with us in terms of worldview and in terms of the help they offer. And I do think that, and this would kind of run down the Nuthetic line, I do think that the helping the whole person is best done in community. And so there needs to be not only a passing off of the problem, but then a, a community that gathers around that person and continues to help. So I would caution people, if you're going to outsource your counseling, which we do, or some of our counseling anyway, to make sure that the church is still the church and that you're not just outsourcing, okay, this person has a need. We don't think we can meet it. Therefore, we pass this person off mm -hmm. to the next. We've made that mistake. And I think it deeply hurts people emotionally and spiritually. So I, I that would be my caution is check, recheck, constantly hold accountable to anyone who you don't know very well, get to know very well, and then make sure that you're continually helping the whole person. You continue to shepherd that person. We're accountable to God, uh, Hebrews 13 would tell us, for those who are in our flock. And I think that means very careful checking. And it means that we continue to care for that person as best we can with the expertise that we have. I have nothing particular to add to that. I'm just nodding my head to everything. Um, the only thing that I would say is that another challenge that we've run into is just the availability of experts who, to whom we can refer, right? So that was actually one of the reasons that we decided to bring this in-house on staff, because we found that there were needs being presented, but there were like six-month, one-year waiting lists. Yeah. And we thought, yeah, my goodness, same. like in addition to the problem of finding good, capable, biblically formed counselors... Uh, they're just the ones that are out there are not available. Yep. Wyatt, I know you're starting out in uh, in pastoral ministry, and and uh, I'd be curious to know what your practices uh, are that you're you're developing. I think that I'm too incompetent to answer this question, so I'll let the others have their word. I like what's <laughs> been said. Well, and hopefully, you know, for for guys who are, um, you know, a little earlier on, that what they're hearing will be useful, and they can sort of uh, fast track their own process for, for us, we've been very fortunate here uh, at Cornerstone. We have, um, we have a lady here who is a fully, fully trained and uh, certified biblical counselor. And um, so she's, I think it's the ACBC uh, stream that she's taken. And uh, I hope I didn't say that wrong, but I believe that's, that's correct. I think it's and, ACDC. Uh, no, I it could be. I, that just, that, that is just, a sort of a challenge. I can't easy remember. One, Wyatt. That's an easy one. You might get thunderstruck at that. You know, you There's a know. couple of different certifications there. But anyway, she's fully qualified as a biblical counselor. does a fantastic job. So we, we refer, I would say, most uh, females that, that want something more than an hour or two hours of counseling uh, we refer to her and she just does a fabulous job. And then we have a, we have a Christian counselor who's a Christian psychologist. And again, uh, he, he's a fantastic guy and, and we uh, refer tons of folks to him. And, uh, and then we have a guy who's a specialist in addiction and, um, and he's worked in the prison system and, and it's just does a fabulous job as well. Born again, Christian, you know, uh, great guy. So 
we that's kind of our inner circle of referrals. And like you, Rob, we uh, will subsidize and help out financially uh, to where necessary to make that happen. And then on outside of that circle, if if there's no openings or if there's a specialized need, we're aware of some other things in the community. We actually have a young lady in our church who works in the secular system, but she's a specialist in um, uh, anxiety issues for young young women. So that's obviously become an increasingly valuable referral. So we uh, we have this sort of inner circle and the outer circle, but but it, like RD said, I feel like I need to have a third ring in my in my solar system because the needs are just overwhelming the referrals that we have, and I feel like I'm behind. I need to go out and, and discover, research, and vet two, three, four more because the you know the needs are are so huge. Lastly, before we let you go, uh, one quick question. One of the things that I'm discovering is as more and more of this specialized discipleship, and that's, you know, in essence, that's what, what counseling is, right? Like uh, when you put somebody in a small group and they're just learning and growing and having friendship and mentoring, okay, that's just regular discipleship. When there's a, a block or a, or a clog that they can't get past and somebody needs to sit down with them for 10, 12, 16, 20 hours, okay, that's specialized disciple making. When so much of that now is being referred outside of the normal disciple-making channels of the church, th that creates a huge oversight problem. How does your board of elders and RD, um, you know, I know you Anglicans have, have funky, you know, errant uh, ecclesiology. Biblical. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally kidding. But uh, so Not from your different- or anemic. Keep yeah, going yeah. with the adjectives. Yeah. From, from your different perspectives, how do you guys manage that in your polity system? Like we are trying to figure that out here. So I'd be curious to hear from you. Well, Artie, let's start, let's start with again. you because because you uh, you know you've you've brought some of this in house, but you still must be managing it externally, and I'd be curious to hear how you do it. So the question again, Paul: How are you managing this? Like, if you're outsourcing, you've got people yeah. making disciples in your in your church now who are on a referral basis, as opposed to right. un, you know within the normal chain of command represented right. by your you know bishop, pastor, session, whatever yeah, you yeah. going over there. So I think Paul is you know. Uh, our, our structure has actually been, although our polity is different, our structure is very similar to what both you and Rob described, um, okay. where we refer to people who are in our church who are also professionals in other capacities. Um, we are bringing this in staff. So we have a staff member right now who's going through training um, so that we can keep that more within the pastoral team itself. When, when people are referred to um, parishioners who are also professionals, then I personally follow up with that professional and, you know, of course they don't divulge confidences, but in broad strokes, I make sure that that person is tracking along well in their discipleship under that person's care. Because to Rob's point, at the end of the day, each of us has to stand before the master and give an account, right? Yeah. Okay. Michael, Rob, Wyatt, anything you guys would want to add to that in terms of how you do, how do you manage this, how you provide oversight to this as a shepherd? I'll echo what Rob said a few minutes ago was to check, check and double check, like to stay in touch. We've been burned on that before a, a reference to someone by a counselor we trusted, but he hadn't really talked to her in a number of years. And so uh, there'd been a lot of drift during that time. And so the, we had to, you know, double check in that sense. And so our approach is basically to know who it is that we're sending them to, and then to trust that those people are filled with and interacting with the Holy Spirit the same way we are. And if you find the right counselors, that will be the case. And then whether directly or indirectly, I would see it as a, it's sort of a, a partnership of care between the counselor and those of us who are tasked with caring for the congregation. So of course, if we find in the course of our 
follow-up conversations that there's something being offered that's anti-biblical or against scripture, we would intervene. But I'd say in the cases that we've handled with the counselors that we've come to trust in, uh, where we've at least partially outsourced the care, we've had a pretty good track record with that, having been burned once or twice. But for the most part, yeah, doing that checking and double checking, making sure they're good, godly people is pretty much what you need. I might add, I think it's implied really strongly, but pastoral care includes knowing how and when to send someone for care, how to follow up. Like you're not just giving someone away, you're working alongside of someone. Yep. So, because I think often the criticism is, well, you're just sending them away and you're done with your care. Well, that's what RD just said. You're following up with the actual counselor, with your, with the client. Like, so it's, it's not the end of pastoral care. It is the stream of pastoral care that is best for this particular person in your church. I think when you re reshape that, it's actually a, a, maybe it can be helped. It'd be helpful to see it that way. I, I, think I agree. Thing... And I, you have to go out of your way. At least I'll, I'll speak from experience. Maybe some of you are different, but I'm busy and there's tons of hurting people. And if we think somehow that we pass this person on, therefore they're okay, I think we failed a shepherd. So we need to make sure not only that we're checking, rechecking, and checking again the people that we're sending them to, but also the person that we are responsible for in shepherding. I think what you said, White, it's just so important. It's it's not about passing them off. It's about getting them the best help as we shepherd them. And where we have failed before, and maybe even continue to fail, because it, it, it's difficult. We have a staff member who is our caregiver, but overwhelmed. We we just, There's way more people, not only in the church, but in the community and in the greater church world that want to use us, which is wonderful. But but we have to remember what our primary responsibility is and have a structure in place that cares for the person as we, I, I, one of you said, as we do this together, we're shepherding them, using them. We, we are responsible, not them. Yeah. And we need to hold on to that responsibility and to do it. I think I would say, at least in, in my setting, we need to do that in a strategic manner or we will forget. And that person will feel or has at least sometimes in our past felt lost and abandoned by the church, even as we thought we had cared for them by passing them off. And Rob, the one thing too is like, if they're suffering, say with chemical addiction and they get over it through this referral, that doesn't mean that they're fit, like fixed. <laughs> like what you just said that you've, you're still shepherding them. Their soul could be rotten, even though their actions have been repaired. Yeah. Yeah. And I think maybe a word to, I don't, I don't know if there'll be any counselors uh, listening uh, on here. Obviously we pitched this towards pastors, but I would say uh, to counselors listening on, if you could do a good job of uh, circling back around and connecting with pastors, that will be greatly appreciated and will increase the number of people referred to. I know that there's a, there's a big difference. I, I find uh, when a counselor is eager uh, to to close the loop with the lead pastor. I, I've worked with some counselors who are very eager and very thorough in that. They send me session summaries, obviously with appropriate levels of detail, yeah. and uh, and they want to make sure I'm aware of what progress uh, markers have been met, et cetera. And that just makes it so easy because then on the handoff, you know exactly what's been covered and know exactly where you are. You know where they could be plugged back in. Is this just somebody now you can slot into a small group and assume that they'll receive you know the, the care they need? Or is this somebody you need to follow up with? Or is there some other mediation required? Uh, it's just so helpful if you get all that information. And then I've also had experiences where the counseling was over six months ago and I never even knew. And so again, they now the, now the person feels abandoned by the church when in fact we thought they were still in process. So uh, counselors listening, yeah, do a great job of closing the loop and uh, do a great job on handing off back uh, to the church. That would be very helpful. Well said. All right. 
Well, uh, that's all the time we have for today, friends. Thanks again for joining with us uh, in this conversation. Hopefully that has mattered to the Canadian church. God willing, we'll be right back here in December for another one of these conversations. We haven't decided yet what the December topic will be, uh, but we trust it'll be something of use to pastors of local churches. If you have a topic in mind and you want to share that with us, uh, by all means do. You can email paul, P-A-U-L, at cornerstoneaurelia.org. Uh, and why you have your eyebrows up? Is that is that insensitive information to share, or how about I'm I just your I'm just very interested that you give your email address to the to the wild like that because I use it. I wow, give yeah. Paul's email address out as well when I give yeah. My, whenever I'm I give a, my phone a, number out or my I'm email a Gen Xer, Paul. so I don't even really know what I'm doing. <laughs> Feel free to call Wyatt. Be... Here's his cell number. <laughs> how about I give him your home address? <laughs> no, and they can. <laughs> I like they it. can no, drop I'll topics send, off. I'm not in everything. I love it. I'm not too worried about it. You email me with a topic that you want to talk about, and we'd be more than happy to do that. I have a few in mind, but if you send me a better one, we'll talk about that in December. All right. Until then, take care and God bless.